Well, if you will, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 20. We're going to spend just a few minutes in Jeremiah this evening. I prayed a moment ago just a little bit about what I want to share from God's Word today. And I don't know if you're like me, but uh, do you ever get frustrated or sometimes even downright angry when you get ridiculed or mocked or maybe not openly ridiculed or mocked or uh, you just get discouraged at living a Christian life or attempting to live a sanctified life in the midst of a world that really, I can't even say that the world doesn't care anymore. It's becoming that this world is becoming openly hostile to those of us who would live by and according to our Christian faith. Uh, I remember whenever we were going to Chicago back in 2007, God called us out of ministry in Tennessee uh, to, to move to Chicago. And the pastor there, who was already on site and he was already doing the work, he told us before we went, now I want you to understand, it's not exactly like it is in Tennessee. Tennessee's the buckle of the Bible belt, much like Kentucky. Uh, you, you're pretty much open to say, uh, willing to say what you want, do what you want, believe what you want without any ridicule, without any mockery. You're a believer, fantastic, we're all believers kind of mentality. Josh Womble, you know that from being down in there. Uh, this is just sort of kind of the mentality. Of, hey, he said, in Detroit, when you get to Chicago, it's going to be a little bit different from that. And he told me, he said, uh, he started with the big picture. And he said, you know, the North American Mission Board poured a lot of time and a lot of money into the city of Chicago a long time ago. And they found that uh, there wasn't a lot going on here. The Spirit wasn't moving here. And it was, they became very discouraged. And there wasn't a lot of people, there weren't a lot of salvations. There wasn't a lot of new church plants. It was just sort of kind of pouring money into a funnel and they're going into nowhere. And so North American Mission Board, without saying they're pulling out, essentially they pulled out of Chicago. And in many regards, I won't say they gave up on Chicago. Certainly they would tell you they wouldn't. But, but they weren't doing a lot in Chicago at that time. And he said that there were also other uh, groups and other people who were, uh, were there and, and, and talked about a community-wide evangelism initiative in early 2000 or 2001, somewhere in there, where they had a strategic outreach strategy. And this was a multi-denominational effort uh, to reach Chicago and to, to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and include church planning and block parties and food and clothing drives for the city's underprivileged and sort of kind of took a social justice approach to reaching the city of Chicago. But after a brief time, they found that that wasn't working either, that people were just really, um, they turned a, a, a deaf ear and a blind eye to that. They didn't want to have anything to do with that initiative to see Christ in Chicago. And critics spoke up originally. And one of the critics was actually a, a group in Chicago called the Council of Religious Leaders of Chicago. And this is what they said about these, these groups that were coming in. They said that uh, they would cause faith-based prejudice that might lead to crimes in the city. So here, here's a group of, of or multi-denominational groups coming to Chicago doing very practical things like serving food and, and doing clothing drives and doing church planning and doing block parties. And this council, on religi a council of religious leaders of Chicago said that they can't do that because their faith-based prejudice might cause uh, crimes to take place in the city. And so originally, uh, later on, that initiative went away. And so Jennifer and I came into it saying, okay, well, there's going to be some opposition to us being there. But we're, hey, we're, we're strong. We are strong Southern Baptists, and, and we've got, you know, the backing of our church and our loved ones, and we're good, and we're good to go with this, and we're going to make this happen. 
And I'll never forget when the light clicked on for me in Chicago. And I might have told you this story before. We were at an art... Um, I don't even know what it's called. Some kind of an art show. It was an outdoor art show at Old Orchard Mall. And so it was a really big event, and they allowed anybody to be a vendor there. And so our church bought a booth. And so we showed up, and we manned the booth, much like we do the, the uh, fair, uh, Fairdale, Fairdale Fair every year. So we had a booth, and we stood out there handing people um, brochures, and we handed them you know, gospel tracts and those kind of things and tried to engage them in the gospel. And unlike here at the Fairdale Fair, where you talk to somebody at the Fairdale Fair, they're going to stop and talk to you. I mean, because this is a very close-knit community, and everybody's very friendly and very open. But there, we were handing out things, and they wanted nothing to do with us. I mean, nothing. I mean, they were they really weren't even rude. That tells you how much they didn't want to have anything. They, they didn't give us any time. And there was a trash can that was right over there. And I remember whenever it was over... And I'd done my two or three hour shift, whatever it was. I just really discouraged because I didn't get to share the gospel one time at this event. And I remember walking over there and I looked in that trash can. And I guarantee you that every single flyer and every single gospel tract that I handed out was in that trash can. And you talk about discouraged. I left there feeling, man, this is one of the most difficult, one of the hardest things that I think I could ever Dude, I mean, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. It's a, a totally different context than what I've ever been in before. The spiritual warfare was so tough. I just don't know that I could do this. God, it's hard to stay fired up in a cold world. And that's what I've entitled this talk tonight. Being fired up in a cold world. How do we do that? Because even then, since 2007, it has been leaps and bounds, the attacks... And the discourage the attacks from non-believers on believers and on the Christian faith, and the discouragement that Christians and Christ followers have now as a result of those beliefs. Dr. Moeller, uh, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, said this uh, in in faculty meeting or something a couple of months ago. He said, within the next eighteen months, every church, every pastor, and every Christian organization is going to have to publicly state what they believe about cultural issues like uh, homosexual marriage, like abortion, and like just homosexual, homosexuality in general. They're going to have to publicly state. Because think about this. We, we know what we believe, but we're going to have to publicly state where we stand. And that's going to cause a lot of trouble for a lot of people. I'll give you one instance. This is one that he shared. And, and think about this. This is, this, this is the nuance of discouragement that, that we have these days. There are a lot of Christian colleges that are part of the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association. There are a lot of Christian schools that are a part of that. The time will come whenever the NCAA will be able to create a mandate or a rule that states that you cannot, you cannot um, impose your religious beliefs in these cultural areas, on these athletes, otherwise you will not be able to participate in the NCAA. And I'm not going to name any schools, but these schools who call themselves Christian schools, who normally or possibly would not allow a homosexual athlete to participate in an athletic event, will have to state their intentions, and then will have to live by those intentions. So what are they going to do? It's going to be hard for that school to be able to stand firm. What about these schools who would be religious-affiliated schools 
that take money from the government. They take federal funding and federal aid from the government. All of a sudden, one day, and it's, it's coming sooner rather than later, they're going to have to make a decision to state publicly what they believe and forsake that financial aid because they will, that, fi- that funding from the government. They'll have to forsake it, which will mean a financial exigency in their way of doing business. It will bring them immediately to a financial crisis. What will those folks do? What will those Christian organizations do? It makes me proud, just as a sidebar, it makes me proud to be a Southern Baptist. It makes me proud of the cooperative program. And it makes me extremely happy that places like Southern Seminary and the six seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention and all the entities of the Southern Baptist Convention don't take any federal money. Instead, we're, we're funded primarily by the cooperative program. And so we're not going to have to worry about that. But these schools and these people and these organizations that don't, they're going to find out really quick it's going to be hard to be fired up in a cold world. So what does that look like for me and you? As this starts coming down the path, as this starts happening, what does that look like for us? Dr. Moeller told the story this week. Um, the Gospel Coalition was this week. The Gospel Coalition is a biannual, meaning it happens every two years. It happens in Orlando, Florida. And he was down there this week, and there was about 6,000, over 6,000 evangelical leaders and believers and, and, and just people who really have strong evangelical beliefs. And so they met for three days just to be built up, to be edified, to grow, to be taught, to be discipled, to fellowship with one another. And Dr. Moeller was down there at that. He came directly from that setting where he was around 6,000 other very strong believers to a debate that he did in Cincinnati. I don't know if anybody saw this or not. He did a debate in Cincinnati, I think on Wednesday night or something like that. He flew straight from Orlando to Cincinnati to do the debate. And he was the only believer, the only person in that room who would stand up for a solid biblical belief on marriage. Now, the Supreme Court's going to rule this summer on gay marriage. There are five states, if I'm not mistaken, that are the, the cases are going before the Supreme Court. So we will have a definitive um, national judicial answer on what the federal government will believe about and stand, where they will stand on gay marriage. We will have that before the end of the summer. And Dr. Moeller participated in this, um, in this uh, forum, in this panel discussion or whatever it was. He went from being a, among 6,000 strong, believing, fundamentalist evangelicals to being alone in a room where he was the only one that stood up for a biblical belief on gay marriage. Now here's the deal. We can get discouraged about that, and we will get discouraged about that, and we better, we better lace it up and get ready for that, brothers and sisters, because it's coming. But there is a way, and Scripture describes, and we can look at the life and the, the trials of Jeremiah and find out exactly where we're going to stand with that or exactly how we should respond to that. How are we going to remain fired up in a cold world, and how are we going to withstand the pressure and stand along Scripture and avoid being overwhelmed? So let's look together at Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 this evening. If you're ready for the Word of God, say amen. I'm going to miss a couple of names here because I don't know how to pronounce them, but uh, forgive me for that. When Peshur, the priest, the son of Emir who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Peshur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were at the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. 
On the next day, when Peshur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, Peshur is not the name the Lord has called you, but rather Magor Misabib. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. So I will give over all of Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon, and will slay them with the sword. And I will also give over all the wealth of this city and all of its produce and all of its costly things. Even all of the treasures of the kings of Judah I will give over to the hand of their enemies and they will plunder them. And they will take them away and bring them to Babylon. And you, Peshur, and all who live in your house will go into captivity. And you will enter Babylon and there you will die. And there you will be buried. You and all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. Verse 7 indicates a little bit of a shift. Now this is Jeremiah speaking to the Lord. He says, O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction. Because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. Verse 9 says, But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah, to the nation of Judah for the last 40 years of its history, and his, his, his task wasn't easy. His name literally means one, who God, one whom God appoints. And God had, had appointed Jeremiah to pronounce judgment over Judah for its sin. Remember, I've talked before about the sin cycle and how they would enjoy profitable times with God and, and then they would sin and turn away from God. And God would send a prophet to tell them about their reproach and tell them of where they are in hopes that they would turn back to God. And Jeremiah was a man who continually confronted the people of Judah. They continued to turn their back on God and Jeremiah would call the people on their sins and call them to repentance. And in fact, in the book of Jeremiah, there are at least 11 confirmed times in this book where he calls them to repentance, and they failed to do that. And because of that, the people finally got tired of that. Think about this. If, 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 if all I did was get up here and wail and wail and wail and proclaim bad news and, and uh, trials to come and God's judgment upon people... Even people who were doing halfway right would probably get tired of me getting up here and doing that time after time. Well, the people of Judah didn't want to hear that. They were sinning. They knew where they were sinning. They were enjoying their sin. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jeremiah. They frowned upon him. They could not stand him because of his judgments and because of his prophesying. And we can tell by his writing, not only in this passage, but in other places prior to this, that Jeremiah was an emotional man who deeply hurt for his people. He, he knew Yahweh. He knew God and wanted them to turn to Him. But this is the predicament that we find Jeremiah in. The people just weren't turning to Him. And in looking in his discouragement, in particular in this passage, we can pinpoint three qualities as believers that we're going to have to have if we're going to stand confidently. Jeremiah was in a desperate place. Jeremiah was in a discouraged place. And there's three qualities that Jeremiah showed here that would help us. Because guess what? We're getting to a pretty desperate place. We're getting to a place where sin... By the way, sin will not win the day. Amen? 
We know that already. Victory's been won. However, we are getting in a place in, in America and quickly in America to where the day of discouragement is coming. Not that we will be overwhelmed, but this is a time when we have to depend upon and rely upon God. And Jeremiah throws us three ways that in the midst of his rejection and discouragement in these difficult days that you and I can approach these days as well. Number one, if you will, how to stay fired up in a cold world. Number one, you must be committed. You must be committed. Peshur, who is spoken about in verses 1 through 6 here, was one of the high priests. He was the chief officer, in verse 1 says, of the house of the Lord. And it says that he heard Jeremiah prophesying. Now here's the deal. Jeremiah's problems didn't come from without. Jeremiah's problems came from within. This was a priest that brought him this trouble. This was a priest who heard him prophesying, who became troubled by his prophecy, and who took Jeremiah and placed him in stocks, meaning that they took him into custody, literally, for a night. He took Jeremiah and he had Jeremiah put in custody because of what he was teaching. He had him beaten. He had him strung up because uh, Peshur also had a public ministry. He probably talked bad about Jeremiah, both behind closed doors and in public. He probably uh, enraged people over what Jeremiah... So can you imagine how Jeremiah had to feel about that? What would you do if somebody did that to you for your faith? What would your reaction be if someone, not even somebody, I mean, we expect that from our enemies, right? Peshur would be one that we would not think would be an enemy of the prophet of God. But yet here he was through him in jail. But we learn a lot about Jeremiah's character and his faith by when he gets out of jail. Look what he did in verse 3. On the next day when Peshur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah went to Peshur. He went to him and says, Peshur is not the name that the Lord has called you. By the way, names back then were very important. Names back then meant something. And that name Peshur originally meant prosperity. So here's a priest whose name was Prosperity. He probably felt pretty good about himself. But then he says, no, your name is no longer going to mean prosperity. Your name is going to be Megor Misabib, which means where it used to be prosperity, now it means terror on every side. Jeremiah was proclaiming judgment against this priest because this priest turned against that prophecy. He turned against what God was sharing with the people. He, he, he in, incited people against that. And then the next few verses talk about exactly what's going to happen. All of Judah's wealth was going to belong to Babylon. All of their people were going to be taken captive in Babylon. Even Magor Misabib himself would die in captivity. It says in verse, at the end of verse 6, it says, uh, And you, Peshur, and all who live in your house will go into captivity, and you will enter Babylon, and there you will die, and there you will be buried. There could be nothing worse in that time for someone to be captured, to be killed, or to die in another land, and then to be buried in that land in which you were taken into captivity. What caused Jeremiah, after coming out of stocks, to go do that? He was committed. He wasn't frightened. He wasn't intimidated. He didn't say, I'll let that go until another time. God gave him a message to tell to Peshur, and he went to Peshur and he told him about it, and he did so with boldness, and he did so with clarity. He wasn't fearful to confront the priest again. Instead, he went right to him. Where does your commitment stand on things like that? To my knowledge, nobody in this room has been physically confronted or physically persecuted for your faith. 
I mentioned Chicago. I've told you many times that our friends in Chicago, the church that God allowed us to be a part of there, is mostly an Assyrian church. And so when you're watching the news tonight, or in the morning, and you're seeing ISIS persecute people in the Middle East, in Iraq, in all those countries, in Syria, and all those places over there, that's the immediate family members of the people in Chicago that we love so much. We're friends with them on Facebook, and we see them wailing. We hear our friends, don't we, Jennifer? We hear them wailing. We see them right, and, and they're so passionate people. Their hearts are breaking because of what's happening to their people. ISIS or ISIL is, is systematically terminating them over there. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, where was it? Was it Kenya? Where they walked into a school over there and, and a group of kids and said, uh, you know, uh, confess either if you confess Christ as Lord, if you re- do not recant your Christian faith, then you will die. And when they did not, they died. Jeremiah was so committed. These Assyrian Christians are so committed that even in light of this type and this degree of persecution, they were willing to stand. You and I, brothers and sisters, the day is coming, and, and I'll agree with Dr. Moeller on this, the day is coming sooner rather than later. And I don't say that to frighten you. Please don't understand. I don't say that to frighten you. But the day is coming where, number one, you're going to have to take a stand. And number two, you're going to have to be willing to stand by that stand. And what will you do? Well, you have the commitment like Jeremiah to do exactly like he did. And I'll admit to you, we all have our weak moments and I will be chief among those. I will be chief among those. And the Bible tells us of others who struggled and had problems. We learned about Moses who tried to excuse himself from being God's mouthpiece because he had a speech impediment. We hear about Gideon who was comfortable in the midst of his oppressors, the Midianites, And his excuse was poverty and lack of stature in his family. We learn about Peter, who was totally out of character when it came time to uh, stand with Christ whenever he was taken away to be crucified. Instead, he retreated to the role of wimp, and he had three successive denials. Listen, we're all fallen to an extent. We all have the propensity to struggle in this area. But here's the deal. We should not struggle because we're not committed. We should not struggle because we don't believe, because you're being faithfully taught. Instead, you and I ought to be the first ones to stand up. You and I ought to be the ones to be the most committed whenever things start getting tough. And Jeremiah shows us exactly what that should look like. One author that I read a while back said it this way, The most dangerous place to be is being lukewarm. Being lukewarm is existing in very dangerous territory, for it is in this realm we are like dying embers of a fire. Now listen to this analogy. We are like dying embers of a fire or a candle that has been burned out. Before burning out, the candle is too hot to be touched, but it provides light in the darkness. After it is burned out, it is soft at first, but soon it turns hard and cold. An ember in the fire, it goes from being so hot that you can't touch it to being so cold that it becomes hard. And in the life of a believer, when we're told from Holy Scripture, what we're to stand for. It's hard to be fired up in a cold world. But if we do not remain fired up in a cold world, we run the risk of becoming cold, and we run the risk of becoming hard. In the book of Revelation, Jesus tells the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you 
out of my mouth. Jesus does not accept neutral religiosity. Therefore, you and I don't have the option to be neutral. We've got to remain hot, even in the midst of a cold world. We do that, first of all, by being committed. Amen? Second of all, if you're going to be fired up in a cold world, you have to count the cost. You have to count the cost. The image of Jeremiah changes as we move from verse 6 to verse 7 in this passage. We see him addressing Peshur the priest. And then in verse 7 and 8, we see him talking directly to God. And basically what he's doing is he's verbally counting the cost of what he's going through right now. He says, you've deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You've overcome me. I've become a laughingstock. Every time I speak and cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction. I'm in reproach. I'm in derision all the day long. That word deceived means to be enticed or persuaded. And that word prevailed in verse 7 means to endure. Verse 7 could literally say, O Lord, You have persuaded me and I was persuaded. You have overcome me and endured. I have become a laughingstock all the day long and everybody mocks me. Here's where we see Jeremiah's discouragement. This is where we see Jeremiah's disappointment. He's basically accusing God of putting him in this position and causing him this great shame. Jeremiah moaned about God's power to overcome his own will. But Jeremiah is saying here, I didn't choose this. You overcame me. I didn't, I didn't decide to do this, God. You, you caused me to do this. You chose me and you, you, you put me aside in order to do this, to be this mouthpiece for you. And now I'm a laughingstock. And now people deride me. And now people mock me all the day long. And so you can see, again, Jeremiah, the emotional, the emotional prophet, being so overcome. It's almost like a sarcastic complaint. And by the way, I was looking at our passage, in the, in, I read Psalm 87 today uh, for, for our call to worship. The book of Psalms are full of those types of complaints. The psalm before Psalm 87, Psalm 86 says, Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Protect my life, for I am faithful. You are my God. Save your servant. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call on you all the day long. Bring joy to your servant's life, because I turn to you, Lord. Psalm 88, the one after the, the passage we, led, we read tonight, says, Lord God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence, for I have had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. I am counted among those going down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I'm like the slain lying in the grave. The Scripture is full of these types of, of distraught complaints and, uh, from faithful servants toward God. And we ask ourselves, is that right? Is it, is it right for someone to do that? Even John the Baptist at one point sent two disciples to Jesus to inquire whether or not Jesus was indeed the expected one. Well, how can someone do that? How can Christians who are so fired up and, and people who are genuine become so discouraged that they would lodge a complaint like that against God? We have to remember that they're not sinless. We have to remember that they're like you and I, they're human. And that's not to explain away discouragement and these types of complaints, but that certainly helps us to understand them. Jeremiah constantly found himself proclaiming violence and destruction. But if you read the book of Jeremiah, you see that he never shied away from it. He wasn't happy with it. He was even distraught with God for putting him in that place. But he never shied away from it. Why didn't he do that? Because he knew God had put him there. And he knew God had given that message. 
And he knew exactly what he had to do. And we see churches today, the great danger that our churches face today is the fact that we've got churches that are making it easier for people to believe whatever they want to believe and to not take this stand, to not have that kind of courage. We've got churches today that have, they soft-pedal the Word of God to an extent that now people feel like it's okay. It'll be alright if I don't stand up for truth. It'll be alright if I don't uh, apply biblical truth to these cultural issues that are coming up. No one will ever know. No one will ever condemn me. I don't have to take a stand for these things. Why should I put myself in that type of situation? Reminds me of what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. If you listen to me, say amen. Weak pulpits are killing us. Weak pulpits are killing us. Again, I praise the Lord that this one's not. I praise the Lord that this one's a faithful and true expositor and proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of the scriptures found within. But weak pulpits are killing society around us. Why do you think issues like homosexuality, abortion, and gay marriage have gotten as far as they've gotten? It's called weak pulpits have allowed them to get there. We've quit teaching the whole truth and the whole counsel of the Word of God. People don't want to be discouraged and disappointed, so they just ignore it altogether. And now, because of that, those of us who take a stand and those of us who are faithful, those of us who would be like Jeremiah and stand up and proclaim the truth of Scripture, now we're going to be put to the test. If you're going to be put to the test and you want to remain fired up in a cold world, number one, you have to be committed. If you want to remain fired up in a cold world, number two, you're going to have to count the cost. And thirdly, if you want to remain fired up in a cold world, you're going to have to be consumed. You're going to have to be consumed. Look at verse 9. In the midst of all his disappointment, in the midst of his complaint, in verse 9 he turns. In verse 9 it's like, it's like somebody slipping down a slippery slope and all of a sudden they, they grasp a hold of something that they can hold on to. Look what Jeremiah says. There's that word, but again. That, changes, that signifies a change of direction. But if I say I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes a burning fire. Shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in. And I cannot endure it. That word burning is actually translated consuming. I think my Bible even, even said that word consuming. Uh, it comes like a burning fire or a consuming fire. It talks about the depth of God's control and the extent of Jeremiah's submission to him. H.A. Ironside put it this way, a burning fire must have a vent, and if the Word of God be thus surging up in one's breast, he simply must let it out. Would it be, would you be, would you be described that way? Would you be described that in the midst, hey, it's tough, it is discouraging. I'm thankful for the songs that Micah led us in today. It is well with my soul. That in our helpless estate, God has already seen us and rescued us in salvation. Can I tell you something? Listen to me say amen. There is no more helpless situation that you were apart from God. You know that, right? There is nothing more helpless that you, than, than your status as being an enemy of the cross. Philippians chapter 3. There's no status that's greater than that. And yet... 
Christ overcame that and made a way for you to be reconciled with God, for your wrath to be absorbed in Christ, and for you to have a relationship with God. There is nothing that He cannot overcome. He overcome, overcame everything with that on your behalf. So what will you do when those discouraging times come? What will you do whenever you have to take a stand on something? What will you do whenever everybody around you threatens to mock you and ridicule you and scorn you? What will you do when your neighbors won't talk to you because of your stand? What will you do whenever people say, Oh, you go to that church. You may go through a season of disappointment. And you may start sliding down that slippery slope. But my prayer and my hope for everyone at First Baptist Church Fairdale, and myself included, is that I'll do like Jeremiah did when he says, But I will not, if I say I won't remember him or speak anymore, what Jeremiah is saying is here, even if I wanted to turn away from him, I couldn't. Even if I wanted to say something else, I wouldn't be allowed to. Why would I not be allowed to? Because in my heart it becomes like a consuming fire, shut up in my bones. Y'all saw the big fire out here at the GE plant the other day, right? The structure still stood for a season, but what came out around the sides? The flames were going somewhere. The smoke was going somewhere. Eventually that thing toppled, but for a season, the flames and the smoke were going to where the oxygen were. It was coming out. Would the Word of God and the power of God and the Spirit of God working in your life and encouraging you and strengthening you and fortifying you, would it be such and so strong that it would be like a fire shut up in your bones that you could no longer let it out? You had, it had to come out. And I'm not saying that you would be the one on the street corner pounding people like that and holding your Bible and waving at people's faces. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is when it gets tough to be fired up in a cold world, well your relationship with God and your personal walk with God be strong enough, would you be so consumed that you would have to, regardless of what it costs you, you'd have to stand with Him. Jeremiah reached that point. He reached the point when he had to do that. There are two undeniable truths in this passage that we can't ignore, that Christians can't ignore. Number one... Difficulties, disappointments, and discouragement will come to the faithful follower and servant of God. Amen? A lot of you have already been through it. It may come with your family. It may come with culture. It may come with personal relationships at work or whatever. Disappointments and discouragements are going to come. That's a sure thing. Number two, only a consuming commitment will allow you to persevere and keep moving forward. Only a consuming commitment will allow you to persevere and keep moving forward for the glory of God. There's an old announcer. I'm a, you guys know I'm a big football, college football guy. There's an old announcer at uh, the University of Georgia. His name's Larry Munson. And uh, I don't think he does it anymore. I met him one time when I was doing a game down there. His name's Larry Munson, and he's got a gravelly voice. Just one of those really deep down, rah, 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 kind of voices. And... Uh, Story goes that many, many, many years ago, because he did it for like 40 years, uh, Georgia was at a goal line stand, and the other team was fixing a score, and Georgia was on defense trying to prevent them from scoring. And Larry Munson said, Hunker down, dogs. Hunker down. And he said it like several times in a row. Hunker down, dogs. Hunker down. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs you and needs me 
to hunker down. It needs you and I to be more like Jeremiah. It needs you and I to be so committed that even though the world is cold, and, and I think everybody in here would agree with me, it is increasingly cold, colder by the day, colder to the things of Christ, colder to the truths of Scripture, colder to the standards that just, just a few years ago were unquestionable, and now they're doubtful. We live in a cold world. But would you and I be willing to hunker down enough to the point where we would be able to stay fired up in a cold world? It's easy to come in here on Sunday morning with persecutions outside those doors or it's in another state or it's another area of the country. ISIS is on the other side of the world. It's easy for us to come in here Sunday after Sunday and do this what we do. And praise God that we're not under that type of persecution. Amen? Praise God for that. But who knows what that'll be like? In a few years more, when the world's colder, will you hunker down with me? Will you hunker down with the Word of God? Will you hunker down with one another? And will you commit to being fired up in a cold world? Let's pray. Father, thank you so, so much for passages like this in Jeremiah. Lord, a passage that is just... Sometimes we don't even look at that. We just sort of kind of blow over that without even considering it. But within those few verses, we see the commitment, we see the counting the cost, and we see the consummation, the, the, the consuming fire that is required for us to remain firm, to stand firm in the midst of the fiery battle. And Father, it breaks our heart to see what's going on around us. It breaks our heart to see the cultural wars that are going on over things that Your Word clearly condemns. And Lord, it breaks my heart to read of churches and religious leaders who would stand up and say nothing, in essence. They would do nothing to stand upon Your Word. They would not teach their people to abide but to conform to the world. Lord, may it never be said of me and my house. May it never be said of First Baptist Church, Fairdale. Father, would You help us with Scripture as our standard to stand on these truths so that we can remain fired up in a cold world. And God, let us to be the truth bearers and let us be the ones who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ even in the midst of trouble and mockery, and discouragement, and disappointment. Father, we know that ultimately victory has been won. We know that ultimately You win. We know that ultimately we will be with You in glory. But Father, while we're here, help us to be faithful and true. Help us to stand firm for You and with You. Help us to do Your bidding in this dark and cold world. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the opportunity to teach your word. I pray that you'd be with us this week. Lord, help us to be light and salt to those that we come into contact with. God, I pray that we will be ready and willing to pour our lives into someone, particularly with the gospel, at every opportunity this week. pray that we would glorify you in all things. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.